Today we are reading from the book of Leviticus, although we have been studying Joshua and we will continue to do so this term. Um, We have Leviticus today and Ernie will share how that fits in with the story. So we're reading from Leviticus chapter 1. Now the, uh, the book of Leviticus was written by Moses and it is a book, a guidebook of holy living about how the priests should perform their duties and so on and Ernie will no doubt share some more about that and just as an aside it is the book in the Bible with the word holiness more than any other book apparently it's 152 times if you want to if you want to count those so this whole book is about holiness so let's read Leviticus chapter 1 entitled the burnt offering the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting he said Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting, so it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons... The priests shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, you are to offer a male without defect. You are to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall splash its blood against the sides of the altar. You are to cut it into pieces, and the priests shall arrange them, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, And the priest is to bring all of them and burn them on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, you are to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off the head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained on the side of the altar. He is to remove the crop and the feathers and throw them down east of the altar where the ashes are. He shall tear it open by the wings, not dividing it completely, and then the priest shall burn it on the wood that is burning on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And now only if I could invite you to come and share these words with us so that we may understand them further. Good morning, everyone. 
Good to be with you again, and it's good to be back in the book of Leviticus. Nobody's favorite book, and yet a book which speaks so powerfully to us. The priest's manual. The manual by which the priest was able to do his job properly. And we, as believers, are all priests. And the next sermon at the end of this month is all about that priesthood. We'll be coming to that uh, at that time. But there's one question I want to ask before we get into the text that's just been read. How do we view the Old Testament? Do we imagine somehow that this is just a very primitive attempt by people to understand what God is like? Is this a, a kind of early human primitive thinking. If so, we'd be very badly mistaken. God spoke. And when God speaks, he speaks the truth. The fact that his revelation to us is progressive doesn't mean that the things he says early on are primitive and less important, they are foundational. If you're teaching a child mathematics, you don't introduce him at six years old to differential calculus. You may think that differential calculus is the most elegant and beautiful form of mathematics. But a six-year-old who hasn't yet got a grasp of arithmetic, leave alone algebra and quadratic equations, will not even begin to think anything about differential calculus. So God laid the foundations before he revealed his great purpose for saving humankind. And the Old Testament, particularly the books of Moses at the beginning of the Old Testament, are the first part of God's progressive revelation of his plan to save us we can expect to see the details of the final plan foreshadowed in early events and in earlier teaching. And what's more, we can also look for teaching in the Old Testament that helps us to understand the events of the New Testament. And this is a principle that theologians call type and anti-type. It's Technical, but it's also a very simple idea. Type and anti-type comes from the Greek word typos. And the word typos was used to describe the printing of an image on a coin. You took a raw piece of metal and a die which had an imprint in it, and you pressed the die onto the metal, and there is an image impressed upon the metal. The metal then becomes the type, and the die is the anti-type, the typos and the anti-typos. It's also like our word typewriter, which comes from the same root. You have a mirror image of a letter on a metal key, and that is pressed against an inked ribbon and prints a correct letter on the paper, a letter we can read and understand. And that's really 
how the Old Testament illustrates and gives foundations for the gospel and the New Testament in our understanding. As I quoted um, in our first study on uh, Leviticus, the New Testament is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. And that's a little adage which keeps us thinking about seeing the Old Testament through New Testament eyes, not seeing it as a primitive beginning, but as a foundational idea, concept, projection, which foreshadows the ultimate truth which God reveals to us in Jesus. Now, I'm very grateful to one of our neighbors, Norman. He knew that I was going to be preaching on Leviticus, and he gave me a copy of this book, which I found absolutely fascinating, Through the Shadows by Adam Thrope. I I don't recommend it for a sleepy Sunday afternoon read. It's full of word studies. This, This man has given his life to studying Hebrew in great depth, and he married into a Jewish family, His brother-in-law was studying to be a rabbi. And when he and Adam got together and looked at Leviticus, Adam's brother-in-law saw so many things that paralleled Jesus that he became a Christian and is now a minister in California. An extraordinary man, an extraordinary study, and I have to say I owe a great deal to this book in the things that I'm going to say this morning. We're looking at the first seven chapters. We looked at those chapters uh, a month ago under the heading, A Pattern for Worship. And this morning, I want to look at the same chapters, but particularly chapter one, under the heading, Pictures of Jesus. Leviticus 1 to 7, you remember, um, is all about offerings. It begins with atonement, the burnt offering. Atonement is the basis of our relationship with God. He makes us at one with him. Then the offerings move into thanksgiving, the grain offering. And then there's the fellowship offering, an offering which is brought to God and shared with God's people. And that's a pattern for our worship. We begin by confessing our sins, receiving atonement from the Lord, and then we thank him, and we have fellowship with him and with one another. There's a a pattern for us there. But you remember we ended by looking, fast-forwarding, as it were, to 1 John chapter 2, where we read, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. And the sacrifices of Leviticus are types that point us 
to Jesus. So we're going to look at some of those pictures. First three verses of Leviticus 1. The Lord called to Moses, spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. And if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. Here's our first picture, a male without defect. Without defect is the Hebrew word tamiyim. And it's a word that has got two meanings. The first meaning is physically. It means an animal or a person that is complete, entire, the whole thing, not missing any parts. Not disabled, not lame, not blind, not deaf, but complete, entire, not missing anything. But there is another meaning for the word tamiyim, a moral meaning. It means a person who is upright, sincere in all their ways, and perfectly righteous. Perfectly righteous. A picture of Jesus. Male and perfectly righteous. Moving on to verse 4. You're to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering. Now, if you've ever been close to a bull and looked it in the eye, you probably feel, as I do, that you'd be rather timid about touching its head. But this word, lay your hand, is actually a very strong word. The word samach. It means to lean heavily upon, to put your weight on the head of this bull. It's a picture of faith. I am counting on this bull on whom God's punishment will fall. It's about to die. And in Christian terms, in New Testament gospel terms, I am counting on the one upon whom God's punishment will fall. It's also an act of identification. I put my weight on this ball, saying that I'm trusting it is taking my place. It's taking my place for God's punishment. And as we identify with Christ, the same thing is true. We identify with him, trusting that he's taking our place for God's punishment. You're to lay your hand, press heavily on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. Trust in Jesus. Count on him by faith. Lean heavily upon him and he will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. There's another picture. Two pictures of Jesus so far. The male without defect to be sacrificed, the one on whom we must lean heavily in faith, 
identifying ourselves fully with him in order that he will be accepted on our behalf to make atonement for our sin. Shows us how seriously God takes sin. And at the same time, shows us how much he loves us to provide a way to make it possible for us to have atonement. Moving on to verse 5, we come to the bit I like least about this whole passage. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, not the priest. You, the worshipper, are to lean heavily on his head and take a knife in your right hand and cut his jugular vein. And as the blood pours out, the priest will gather it together in a bowl. And it's quite a humane method of slaughter in as much as the animal will just slowly lose consciousness and crumple to its knees and die through loss of blood. But I find myself horrified at the thought of taking a knife and doing that to an animal or anything for that matter. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. What is that all about? Why is the blood so important here? Why is that collected by the priest and splashed onto the altar? Well, Leviticus itself gives us the answer to that in uh, chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. The life is in the blood. The blood is the symbol of life. And sin is a capital offense. It requires that life be poured out in order that sin may be forgiven. Indeed, if we fast forward again to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, in fact, the writer to the Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But I have a bit of a problem with this picture. You see, because I'm so squeamish that I can't imagine myself cutting the animal's throat, I can't possibly imagine that I am responsible for the death of Jesus. Do the pictures really mean that? Do they do they combine in that way, or is there some, some discontinuity here? Well, let's stop for a minute and have a game of Cluedo. Who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans with the nails on Calvary? That's the obvious answer. They conducted the execution, and yet Pilate washed his hands and said, see, uh, I'm washing my hands of the blood of this innocent man. And the Jew, Jewish leaders shouted out to him, his blood be on us and on our children. 
So in a sense, the Romans were being uh, excused for the execution. So was it perhaps the Jewish leaders with 30 pieces of silver in the temple? Did they kill Jesus? You could easily say that that plot was the reason that Jesus died. And so, yes, they did carry a level of responsibility. But the the anti-Semitic slogan that Jews are Christ killers is abhorrent. It's utterly, utterly untrue to blame a race of people for the death of the Savior. You could say there's something else, something cosmic going on here. So is it Satan who killed Jesus? Or was it indeed God who killed Jesus on the cross? I don't think any of those answers satisfy us. Do you remember what we just sang before Kevin read Leviticus 1 to us? Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life I know that it is finished. Who killed Jesus? I did. And you did. We sang it together. We killed him with our sin. It was our sin that held him there. And that sin was committed in 21st century England. Extraordinary conclusion to come to. And one which is unnerving. I can accept that Jesus died for me and yet to accept the responsibility for his death is something that fills me with horror, revulsion and even remorse. That's another picture that Leviticus teaches us that comfortable clean, sanitized, 21st century Westerners find hard to grasp and enter into. But a message nonetheless which helps us understand just what our sin is really all about. There's another fascinating little picture here as well. In Leviticus 7, verse 8, we read, The priest who offers a burnt offering for anyone may keep its hide for himself. The priest who offers the burnt offering keeps the hide. Now, why should it be that the rest of the bull is burnt on the altar, but the hide is kept and tanned um, to become clothing for the priest? The perfect skin of this male without defect becomes clothing for the priest. If it's a bull, he gets a leather jacket. If it's a sheep, he gets a fleece or a woolly jumper. He gets clothing from the skin of the burnt offering. 
And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Not only did he take our sin upon himself, he gave us his perfect righteousness as clothing for us. Isaiah wrote in chapter 61, verse 10, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ becoming the clothing of the believer. So two more pictures of Jesus. Not only the male without defect to be sacrificed, not only the one on whom we must lean heavily in faith, identifying ourselves fully with him, but also the one whom we are responsible for killing, the one who took our sin upon himself and who enabled us to be clothed in his perfect righteousness. Those are the aspects of the sacrificial system which in many ways give us clear pictures of the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice sacrifice for us. But what about the animals themselves, the animals that were sacrificed? Well, Leviticus 1 tells us of four animals that may be brought as a burnt offering. We'll look at each one in turn. But in chapter 5, concerning the sin offering, we're told that the animal you bring must match your wealth and status. No one, even the high priest, even the king, is so rich and important that they don't need atonement. Indeed, atonement for such people is even more costly than for ordinary people. On the other hand, no one is too poor to receive it. If you're right at the bottom of the pile with no influence and no money, you can still receive atonement by bringing the lesser animal to be sacrificed. It's true also of Jesus that God's provision for atonement is for everyone. No one is too grand to be able to say, I don't need it. No one is too awful to say, this is beyond me and I cannot aspire to it. God's provision for atonement is for everyone. Well, let's look at how the animals themselves give us pictures of Jesus. The young bull, the first and most prestigious of the offerings, is a beast of burden. The the bull is uh, able to do almost the same work as a tractor. When you look at the way that fields are ploughed in Africa in very rapid Uh, fashion using a yoke of oxen and when tractors in those same fields get bogged down and struggle you start to realize that this is an extraordinary animal it's also a symbol we say as strong as an ox it's a symbol of great strength and 
also a symbol of determination. When a bull sets its face to go to a place, you'd better not get in its way. It is going to go there. I don't follow Spanish bullfighting at all, but I'm told that in the bullring, if uh, a bull is wounded and the matador has to leap over the barrier to escape, it takes a minimum of four picadors and very often a dozen other men to come and restrain the bull so that it may be slaughtered uh, too humanely at the end of its, its fight. The determination of the bull, the strength of the bull, is enormous. And that is a picture, a picture of our Jesus. Great strength. Bearing our burden. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, Peter wrote. It's also very determined. You see, he was so strong, he could call upon 12 legions of angels. When he was in uh, Gethsemane and the, the disciples were surrounded by the temple guard, Peter drew his sword and lashed out and Jesus said, no, no, stop, put your sword away. Do you think I can't call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? He had that strength, an army at his disposal. And yet he was so determined to complete the task for which he came to earth that he did not use that strength other than to carry him through the terrible ordeal. So, the young bull, a picture of Jesus. The next animal that you might bring is a sheep. The sheep, uh, according to David Watkins, who wrote the book, A Shepherd Reflects on the 23rd Psalm, the sheep, he said, is the most submissive of creatures. It's a symbol of self-sacrifice, of submission to another's will. It's another picture of Jesus. Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Self-sacrifice. He gave himself. He was determined to do it. He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's almost a contradiction in terms to look at the appalling horror of execution by crucifixion as being fragrant. And yet that's how Christ perceived the offering that he was making of himself. Luke 22, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he realized the full horror of what he was about to go through. And he said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Self-sacrifice, submission to another's will, 
a perfect picture of Jesus. Then the other animal you might bring from the flock would be a goat. In the Middle East and Africa, you will find great difficulty in distinguishing between goats and sheep. The sheep tend to have rather hairy coats, and the goats tend to have rather woolly coats. And often their horns resemble each other. And you look at the animal and you can't make up your mind. There's one thing which shows you which kind of animal it is. You look at the tail. A sheep's tail always hangs down and never comes up. The goat's tail always sticks out or up and never hangs down. And that is something of a symbol of their character. The sheep is submissive. The goat is wild and willful and not domesticated. In fact, most of the goats that were in the flocks of Jesus' time would have been wild mountain goats that have been enticed into the flock by the offer of easy food and protection. And they would be the awkward ones. The guilt became a symbol of self-centeredness, of unwillingness to conform, and of ungodliness. You remember Jesus' story about the end of time. When people are gathered before him, he divides them into two groups, the sheep and the goats. The sheep he puts on his right hand, and he says, come and enjoy the the delight of, of being in my father's family, because I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. I was in prison, and you came and visited me. And I said, Lord, when did we do that? And he said, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my little ones, you did it to me. And then he turned to the goats, and he said, you, when I was hungry, you never gave me anything. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me a drink. When I was in prison, you stayed away. You never visited me. When, Lord, when did that happen? Inasmuch as you didn't do it for the least of these, my little ones, you didn't do it for me. The goat, the exact opposite of the sheep. How is this a picture of Jesus? Is it possible? Well, in an extraordinary way, it is. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He joined himself to the goats. He took the punishment. He went with those who were under the curse in order that we might be released. Finally, the dove or young pigeon has to be a young pigeon. Older pigeons are quite vicious creatures, but young pigeons are like doves. They're very gentle, very submissive. Their characteristics are that they never retaliate. Whatever you do to a dove, it will not peck at you or retaliate. Adam Thrope tells the story of his younger brother 
who used to keep racing pigeons. And his brother saw this beautiful dove and bought it because he loved birds. And he made the mistake of putting it in the cage with the pigeons. The pigeons, jealous of the dove's appearance, pecked at it and pecked at it. Within an hour, all of the dove's feathers were scattered around the cage. And while the birds did this terrible thing, the dove stood there, immobile, and allowed them to do it. Never retaliating. A symbol of peace, of innocence, of harmlessness, of simplicity, of purity, a picture of Jesus. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Before Pilate, the chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. What an extraordinary trial. A man accused of infamous lies, and yet he doesn't justify himself. He doesn't retaliate in any way. He lets them do it, just as the dove let the pigeons peck out its feathers. There's still another fascinating thing about the dove. Reading verse 14, If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, you to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar Ring off the head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He's to remove the crop with its contents and throw them down east of the altar where the ashes are. Now, if you've ever um, taken a fresh turkey to prepare it for Christmas, um, I'm not meaning the ones that have got the giblets in plastic bags on the inside, but you'll know that you cannot pull the crop out through the neck. You have to take the crop out from below. And the way that this was done with the sacrificial birds was to cut a hole in the body of the bird and pull the crop from below the ribcage and out. And a thing which I have never been aware of When you take the crop from a bird, the heart is exposed on the surface. (coughs) Here, the priest was to remove the crop and expose the heart of the bird and show it to the people. He shall tear it open by the wings, not dividing it completely. Then the priest shall burn it on the wood that is burning on the altar. What an extraordinary thing to do. Why on earth spread the bird out to show its heart and then burn it on the altar? Why the pulling out of the wings? Well, it's an extraordinary image. It is so much a picture of Jesus stretched out on the cross 
his heart of love revealed through everything that he suffered. So we have pictures of Jesus. The male, perfectly righteous, one on whom we can lean heavily by faith, who receives the punishment for our sins, for whose death we are personally responsible, who clothes us in his perfect righteousness, one who is given for everybody, rich and poor, great and small, like the young bull, strong and determined, like the sheep, self-sacrificing and submissive, like the goat, identified with our sin and godlessness, like the dove, at peace, not retaliating, stretched out on the cross, showing us his heart of love. Hallelujah. What a saviour.